Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now this is a reading from the Gospel according to Mark. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the chalice that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The chalice that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Several years ago, I was, uh, the, I was the postulant director for my community. And basically what that means is I was put in charge of all of the, the young men, the new guys who were, just, who were entering our community. So they were, they were fresh from the world, either from a career or from college or from just wandering around trying to figure out what are they going to do with their life. I got put in charge of all of them. It was like trying to domesticate a wild animal, okay? It was crazy. It's funny. <laughs> but these men, these young men who I was in charge of, they were very passionate. They were very idealistic. And they were also very young. And I would speak with them. I would be with them one-on-one, -on -one, maybe every week or every, every two weeks. And as our meetings would continue throughout the year, I began to notice that most of their struggles occurred, whether it was in ministry, whether it was in prayer, or whether it was just simply in fraternal life, living together. But I realized that most of their struggles occurred because they kept running into themselves. They couldn't get out of the way. And what I mean by that is, you know, they would be frustrated with prayer if they were not being consoled. Or if prayer wasn't going the way that they thought it should be. 
if the poor that we were serving were not interested in them, then they would oftentimes pull back and they would show little interest in them. If another brother thought differently, or if he didn't see them the way they viewed themselves, or maybe the way their friends or family viewed them before they entered religious life, then they were very quick to dismiss the other brother and conclude that something was wrong with him. And you know what? That's exactly the way it is in the beginning of the journey. We keep running into ourselves over and over and over. But thankfully, it's not where God desires to leave us. I would have to remind those young men very regularly. I would have to be very gentle, but also very firm. And I would just simply have to remind them that there's more here than just you. In other words, prayer, ministry, fraternal life, just discipleship in general is not primarily about your own success. It's not about necessarily being recognized or appreciated. I mean, it's great if that happens. And if that happens, then yeah, we welcome that and we're grateful to God for that. But discipleship is not an achievement that I acquire based upon my own strength or my own ability. You know, we oftentimes begin our journey by thinking that our version of God's will is God's will. And that our understanding of it is the way it's supposed to look or the way it's supposed to feel. So we oftentimes have in our mind an idea, well, this is what God's will is supposed to look like. And if I'm really doing God's will, this is how I'm supposed to feel. Because we think, how could God's will be something different from what we think. But what we come to realize and what we come to experience is that God's will is usually very different from what we first imagined or from what we first thought. When I hear the gospel that I just read a few moments ago about James and John, I am reminded of those conversations with those young men in my community. 
that yes, they are chosen by the Lord, as all of us are. Yes, they have given up a lot to be where they are, as all of you have as well. Yes, even where they are right now, even where you are and where I am right now, is a, is a privileged place. It's a special place with the Lord. But they, and certainly myself, I don't know about you, but myself, they still have a long way to go. And why do I say that? So specifically about the disciples in that gospel. The reason is, is because their gaze is not fixed entirely and purely on Jesus. Right? They have one eye on Jesus and they have one eye on their own glory their own success, their own being recognized by others. So they have one eye on Jesus and one eye on themselves. It's almost funny, but they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That line cracks me up. That is the, one of the funniest lines in the gospel because it, it's so human. Like, we just want to use God, right? Quite honestly, they sound like children telling their parents what to do as if they know what is best, right? I'm sure none of your kids ever did that, right? <laughs> but... Don't we do the same at times with God? We do the same sometimes with God. Right? When we pray, Thy will be done. Right? In the Our Father, you know, we say the Our Father at least several times a day. And in that prayer, we say, Thy will be done. Do we really mean God's will? as it really is to be done? Or are we praying that God's will, the way I want, and the way I think it should be, be done? And so, what are the disciples so desperately lacking in this stage of their relationship with the Lord. You know, just for the record, I'll say, like, they are, they are utterly normal. This is completely normal and natural human behavior. But the Lord doesn't want us to be natural. He wants us to be supernatural. Right? So what is it that they are lacking? In my opinion, what they are lacking is essentially the gift of contemplation. Now, that word contemplation might intimidate some people. So let me just try to explain it very simply. In the Catechism, in paragraph 
2715. It has such a beautiful short definition of contemplation. It says, contemplation is a gaze of faith fixed on Jesus. That's it. It's this deep looking at Jesus. And then the Catechism says that this this focus or this gaze upon Jesus is a renunciation of self because we are moving outward away from ourselves towards Him. And then it says this gaze purifies our heart. You know, I think we run into so much, so many problems interiorly, and I would even say emotionally and psychologically, because we're not simply looking at Jesus. Our gaze is not fixed on him. And when it's, when it's not, <clears throat> we begin to think, all kinds of crazy thoughts. And so, another word for contemplation is maturity. Right? What we are essentially talking about is mature discipleship. Right? Contemplation is not anything extraordinary. It's the natural progression of prayer. It's the fruit of a faithful and generous prayer life and relationship with God. And so, why do I say that contemplation is synonymous with maturity? Well, because, you know, a characteristic of immaturity is the inability to see beyond oneself, right? We oftentimes say kids are immature because they literally literally believe that the whole world revolves around them, right? Kids put up a temper tantrum if they don't get their way. And, you know, as adults, we put up temper tantrums also, but we hide it. It's all internally, and we all sort of talk to ourselves about it. But the difference oftentimes between us and children is that we can hide it, whereas children can't. They can't control themselves. You know, teenagers are characteristically extremely self-conscious. You know, if they get a pimple on their face, they literally think that everyone in the country is talking about it, right? Right? And would we say that this is a characteristic of a mature person? Well, of course not, because their world is too focused on themselves. It's too narrow. It's too limited. It's seeing everything, God, themselves, and other people, merely through their own lens. And so it's it's very narrow. Thomas Merton once said that without a humanity shaped by contemplation, 
we will have nothing to give others. So in other words, without a humanity that's, that's shaped, that's not shaped by this deeper looking, this deeper gaze upon Jesus, what, will we, what we will be transmitting to others is just our own immaturity, our own temper tantrums, our own self-preoccupation, and not the self that is purified and matured by Christ. Which is why contemplation, this deepening of our prayer life, of our relationship with God, is necessary both for us and for the world. It's necessary for your families, for your friends, for your women's group. You know, in the gospel that I read, imagine if James and John stayed right there. If they stayed right there at this place with, with this attitude and with this disposition. John would have never been able to write his gospel without the gift of contemplation. And can you imagine life without the Gospel of John? The Gospel of John is, without a doubt, the most profound, theological, mystical work in human civilization. It is such a profound uh, work on God. None of that would have been possible if he would have stayed where he was in this gospel. St. James was the first apostle to be martyred. I think in the year 42. I could be wrong on that. But anyway, he was the first apostle to be martyred. That could never have occurred if he stayed where he was. Thank God that they grew up. Right? Because if they didn't, we would be lacking a lot. You know, when I was in seminary, I couldn't imagine being a priest. I was like, this is never going to happen. I'm not really going to be a priest. I'm just studying to be a priest. But you know, now, after 10 years of priesthood, I don't even think about being a priest. <laughs> I don't have to think about, how am I going to celebrate Mass? How am I going to hear confessions? How am I going to give this talk? I don't even have to think about that anymore because I know and I've experienced God's grace carrying me. I was deeply immature in the seminary. I couldn't see because I, had, I was the focus. But now, 10 years later, I've matured a little bit. And so 
this reminds us that our own maturity is God's top priority. Because when we are mature, there is less of us getting in the way. And so, what is, or what, what can be, one, if not the best, greatest aids for us in the life of contemplation, in a life of deepening prayer? Well, in my opinion, and from my experience, the greatest aid for us to grow in a deeper relationship with God is simply the presence of Mary. And the reason is, is because Our Lady is always, always gently turning us in the direction of her Son. Mary is always trying to fix our gaze on Christ. Because that's where her gaze always is. Mary is always fostering this contemplative posture that helps us stop running into ourselves and to run into Him. Every year, we, when we transition from, from Lent, particularly to, from Holy Week, into, Easter, into the Easter season, there's always this dramatic shift that we see every year. You know, in Holy Week, especially Holy Thursday, Good Friday, the disciples are essentially cowards. They are afraid. They are anxious. They all betray Jesus. And then all of a sudden, on Easter Sunday, and then the following, especially the following week of Easter, the disciples in the scriptures, they are literally different people. And you might ask, what happened? Well, of course, like, so one day Peter is denying Jesus, and the next day he's standing up in the synagogue proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord. And it's like, what has happened to Peter? What has happened to all the others who are doing the same thing? And, you know, of course, the grace of the resurrection, of course, uh, the grace of Pentecost, or the descent of the Holy Spirit, obviously, those things greatly transform their hearts and their minds. But there's also something else that's, that's very subtle, but I think it's just as important. And it's that this change from the disciples came because from Good Friday up until Pentecost, they were being mothered by Mary. At the cross, Jesus gives Mary to John. 
or gives John to Mary as well. And it's during that time where she is gathered with the disciples. And what do you think she's doing there? Do you think she's just like them, afraid, anxious, worried? Well, of course not. Mary is there consoling them. Mary is there praying with them. Mary is there teaching them. She's turning them away from their fears, turning them away from their anxieties, and turning them back towards her son. You know, I can say that in my vocation, just in my life, I can say with 100% confidence that without any doubt, I would not be a priest. I would not be a religious. And I don't even know if I would be a Christian if it were not for Mary. And this is why I can say that, or say this. And some of you might know this, but late in my teens, my mother got uh, very sick, suffered from depression and dementia, and, and basically gave up on life. And I was like 17, 18 years old when this started to happen. <clears throat> and I wasn't really practicing the faith at all. And when this event, when this tragedy was happening, I had no one to turn to. I was a teenager, deeply confused, deeply alone, and in pain. And thank God that my dad has a beautiful devotion and love for Our Lady. And so in my house, there was always images of Mary, there was always rosaries present. And I never forget that one, one day, I just went into my dad's room. I was probably 17 years old. I took a rosary, and I took one of those little pamphlets that say how to pray the rosary, and I went down into my room. And I just, I started to pray the rosary. But the funny thing was that almost immediately, I started to pray the rosary like a contemplative. Or maybe it's better to say that through praying the rosary, I became a contemplative. And what I mean by that is, it would take me like 45 minutes or an hour to pray one rosary, so five decades. And the reason for that is because I would, I would announce a mystery and I would say that I would pray the, pray the decade and then I would just be quiet for a few minutes because I was so enamored by the mystery. It was so like just opening my heart and my mind. I would want to just stay there for a while in silence. And, that's, and then I would go on to the next decade. That's why to this day, I can't pray the rosary in a group because they say it too fast. You know, I was at a parish once and this, this person was praying the rosary and says, Father, do you want to join us? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know. It's, you kind of pray it very fast. And they're like, oh no, it takes us like 20 minutes. And I'm like, 20 minutes? It takes me like 
60 minutes. I was, like, I was like, it's not you, it's me. I'm just very slow when it comes to the rosary. But, um, you know, because in the rosary, we are contemplating the mystery of Christ with Mary. Like, why would you want to rush that? I can't think of a better thing in the world to look at Jesus while holding Mary's hand. It's like, please take me now. That is the best scenario possible. To me, that's heaven. And so why would you want to rush that? Why would anyone simply want to get through that? Right? Whether you pray two decades, five decades, 20 decades, who cares? To me, how much is not, quantity is not important, but quality. Our Lady is taking us by the hand in the rosary, and she's showing us her son. She's showing us the son that she knows better than anyone ever in the history of humanity. Better than any theologian, any saint, or any holy person. No one knows Jesus like Mary. And you know, it's interesting, four of the last six popes, at least four, the other two might have, I just haven't seen it, but four of the last six popes, Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis, have all written and spoken of the rosary primarily as a way of contemplation. Pope Paul VI said, without contemplation, the rosary is a body without a soul. In other words, it's incomplete. John Paul II said, with the rosary, the Christian people sits at the school of Mary and is led to contemplate the beauty of the face of Christ. Right? This is what we're talking about, fixing our gaze upon Christ. And so it's Mary who directs us to this gaze of Christ that is contemplation. And, you know, on the surface, it can seem like there's a lot of activity going on in the rosary. And maybe on one level there is. But the reality is, is beneath that, maybe what might seem like noise or activity, there's only one activity going on. And it's Our Lady turning us in the direction of her son, fixing our gaze upon him and drawing us more deeply into this contemplative posture. The longer we are with Mary, the more she turns our gaze upon Christ. We would never say what the apostles said in the gospel. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. The longer we are with Mary, we would never say anything like that. Instead, we would turn to Jesus and we would say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I want to do. 
Because Mary is turning us away from ourselves. Thank God. And she's turning us to Jesus. You know, Jesus responds to James and John's request with a correction. Right? He says to them, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first must be the slave of all. And then he reminds them, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is what maturity looks like, which is the fruit of contemplation. Maturity expresses itself, manifests itself best in selfless service. It's where Our Lady is pointing us, and it is what Jesus desires most from us. And so let us ask Our Lady this night to help us to continue to deepen our gaze upon Christ. Amen.